0: Chapter six of England in the Middle Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. England in the Middle Ages by Elizabeth O'Neill. Chapter six The Breakup of the Middle Ages 1399 to 1485 the fifteenth century exhibits the worst aspects of the medieval system something of idealism redeems the cruelty of the previous centuries but the new century was marked by a new jealousy and coarseness the age wears itself out in faction fights in which each man seeks his own hand the second part of the hundred years war arose not from the national impulses which form one element in the first part but as a device of a king hard-pressed at home, anxious to dazzle opponents by his military prowess. It was an age of spurious romance. It achieved the spurious forms of a constitutionalism which broke down before an equally hollow revivalism of feudalism. It had no genuine literature, but only imitations. Even the flow of Latin chronicles stopped short, dress was no less splendid than in the previous age but female dress at least degenerated in design the time produced a characteristic architecture beautiful at its best but with a tendency to overemphasize detail the chief mark which the incipient renaissance made on england was an approximation to the violence which characterized the italian politics of the time torture was now first used as part of a legal process whereas in the true middle ages a scrupulous delicacy had forborne to fetter an accused man in court lest this should undermine his self-possession there were it is true side currents towards better things in fourteen seventy seven william caxton set up his printing press in westminster sanctuary and produced laboriously beautiful editions of english and latin works yet chief among his patrons was that john tiptoff earl of worcester who as constable under edward the Fourth, earned a monstrous reputation for the ruthless doing to death of his political enemies by an unprecedented application of the principles of roman law which he had learnt at padua besides the suppression of heresy in the earlier period there is little to relate of church history corporations grew rich and though new monasteries were established the tendency was rather towards the foundation of schools and colleges this quiet and religious life was perhaps not altogether a bad sign and it finds its parallel in that of the people as apart from the nobles trade flourished and the agricultural population was flourishing it is only the upper classes which have a history The age is full of incident but it is a repetition of incident and its history is best briefly told in the summary of the tendencies which the details merely serve to illustrate henry the fourth came to the throne as a parliamentary sovereign and he reigned as the slave of an assembly which had degenerated in its spirit and policy henry had great need of funds to quell the opposition which met his rule on every side the welsh and scots were against him in wales owen glendower still held out at henry's death the percys beat the scotch for him at hamilton hill and then the king himself had to subdue them the Orleanists in france invaded guillonne ostensibly on richard's behalf henry raised expeditions to face all this opposition but parliament refused to make adequate supplies and hampered the king so that he could not give the kingdom that good governance which was the crying need of this century it is difficult to feel any enthusiasm for the parliamentary victories of the period for this very reason the assembly won rights of control while what was really needed was a strong executive the tale however must be told and the principles which parliament vindicated had their value as precedence in an age which was ripe for their application henry was forced to nominate his council in parliament and to agree to appropriation of supplies and audit of accounts another aspect of the reign was the emphasis of orthodoxy archbishop Arundel had helped henry to win the crown and in 1401 the statute de heretetico comparendo was passed which made death by fire the penalty for obstinate heresy the first to suffer was william Sauter a lollard priest of london and several clerics and laymen were burnt during the reign yet the king had allowed the summary execution of archbishop scrope who had taken part in the northern rising the last years of henry's reign were more secure but he was dying of leprosy his son prince henry it was said had designs on his crown the court was divided by faction involving no principle. henry died in march fourteen thirteen having drawn little satisfaction from the crown which he had won so questionably. It is hard to feel any sympathy with him. He seems to typify the sordid aspects of the age, and even its spurious graces. The king of twenty-five, who ascended the English throne as Henry V in 1413, has been pictured for us by an inimitable hand as the type of ideal manhood, but history does not seal the verdict noted for his lightness and loose living as a prince on the day of his father's death he put these things away he was genuinely religious in a narrow way and he regarded his kingship as a sacred charge within his lights he never sullied it but his very righteousness is irritating because of his narrow vision and his crude assumptions he was not sordid but this was the shallowest of idealisms he was already in a stronger position than his father and his first parliament made him a generous grant it and the nation generally were enthusiastic for the french war which henry was to renew his orthodoxy too was pleasing to the nation henry the fourth had enforced the statute against heretics as languidly as he might and had never struck at the great ones who were tainted with Lothardy, but his son had a fierce hatred of heresy and immediately on his accession he attacked Sir John Oldcastle by courtesy Lord Cobham, a notable Lollard leader and a scholar, when such among laymen were still rare. He was condemned to be burnt, but escaped and raised a forlorn revolt, which was easily put down. He was still at large till 1418, when he was captured and sent to the stake but the chief interest of the reign centres in the renewal of the french war the policy is almost the obvious one for henry to pursue in order to popularize the dynasty but this is a cynical motive which perhaps acted unconsciously he seems to have sincerely believed in edward the third's claim and in his own inheritance of it france was torn by feuds between the two great parties the armagnacs who had possession of charles the sixth the mad king and the burgundians henry landed in normandy in the summer of fourteen fourteen with a well-conceived plan of campaign meaning to reduce the duchy by a series of sieges pestilence broke out among his troops and after taking harfleur he marched for calais an immense armagnac army met him at agincourt on the twenty-fifth of october and the famous battle was fought and won by the english in the traditional manner of creche or poitiers the archery doing vast execution against the heavy french cavalry in land which was but morass henry returned to england with immense prestige which was increased by his alliance with the emperor zigzymund with the aim of putting an end to the great schism which had torn christendom since the return of the papal seat to rome in 1378 the end was achieved when the council of constance elected pope martin v from 1417 to 1419 henry was again in france and conquered all normandy in the latter year the burgundians outraged by the murder of john duke of burgundy by the dauphin charles and the armagnac party formed an alliance with henry The Burgundians were powerful in the north, which alone accepted the Treaty of Troyes, by which Henry married Catherine, the French king's daughter, and was recognized as regent and heir of the Mad King. There was fighting still to do in France, and in May 1421 Henry went a third time. On the 31st of August he died of dysentery at Vincennes, and in two months Charles the Mad King was dead too. Henry VI, the son of Henry and Catherine, was not two years old, and power was divided out between his two uncles, John, Duke of Bedford, and his younger brother, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. Bedford was regent, but to him fell the conduct of the war. Gloucester remained in England as protector, though power really lay with the council. The home history for twenty years, while the king grew to his feeble manhood is merely the story of the quarrels between Gloucester and the council, and especially with Henry Beaufort, Bishop of Winchester, the last surviving son of John of Gaunt. Gloucester was vain and factious, while Beaufort was a statesman and a patriot. Meanwhile, Bedford was doing his best to fulfill an impossible task, and a generation of war leaders were being trained in the ruthlessness and violence which such a war begets. In which were to mark the Wars of the Roses in the next generation, Bedford's effort to win the south of France from the King of Bourges, as the English derisively termed Charles the Seventh, were made of no avail when, in 1429, Joan of Arc, the peasant girl of Doreme, forced the English to raise the siege of Orleans, the key to the south, and led Charles the Seventh to be crowned at Rheims joan is the one heroic figure in an age of violence and treachery and she saved the fair land of france for which she had so great pity the english were demoralized by her prowess and the national spirit which she symbolized though she was captured and burnt at rouen the work she had done went on in fourteen thirty five the burgundians deserted the english and the death of bedford destroyed any further hope of victory in the next year charles the seventh recovered paris yet for some years longer the english kept a desperate grip on their conquests in the north and on Guienne. the council hated the thoughts of peace and humphrey of gloucester was loud in his demands for war he however fell into insignificance with the disgrace of his wife eleanor of cobham in fourteen forty one for practising magic arts against the life of the young king Beaufort, with his nephew Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, and William de la Pole, Earl of Suffolk, controlled the government, and the truce of Tours was signed in 1444. Henry, who was weak to imbecility, was married to Margaret of Anjou the next year, a woman of remarkably strong character and lively temperament. She immediately allied herself with Somerset and Suffolk, and became involved in the odium, which was the inevitable lot of those who made peace in a war which had begun so gloriously. In 1447, Anjou and Maine were surrendered, and Gloucester appeared once more to head the discontent, but was arrested and died in a few days, perhaps by foul means. Normandy was reconquered by the French in retaliation for the sallies made by the garrisons, Somerset was in Normandy, and Suffolk was made the victim of popular indignation. He was impeached and banished, but intercepted by his enemies on his way to Flanders, and murdered. In the same month, the popular sentiment found expression in a rebellion of the men of Kent, the hotbed of political agitation, One John Cade led it, and terrorized London for two days. But early history was repeated and the violence of the mob led to its dispersal by the men of London, and Cade was killed. The rising was an indication of the strength of popular feeling. It was significant that Cade had used the name of Mortimer. The real representative of that house, Richard, Duke of York, was lieutenant of Ireland, but left his post and arrived in England in 1450 when Somerset came back from France. York assumed the position of leader of the opposition to the weak government of the court party, which went rapidly from bad to worse. Henry gave and spent without counting, and the want of good governance at home aggravated the sense of disaster abroad. In 1453, Guienne was won by the French, and nothing remained of the territory for which Englishmen had fought for a century, but Calais. In the same year, Henry went mad, and at last Margaret bore him a son, Edward. Parliament made Richard protector of the realm, and Somerset was impeached and sent to the tower. Richard was occupying his natural position, and there is no evidence that he aimed at the throne, though the weakness of the Lancastrian rule must have tempted reflections on his superior rights by descent from Lionel, Duke of Clarence richard seems to have been genuinely anxious for good governance and from one point of view the coming struggle is that of constitutionalism against misrule it is significant that the lancastrian party did without parliament for three years fearing to face it it was inevitable that richard when embittered by the lancastrian distrust of his aims should act as he did when in 1455 henry recovered and Richard was dismissed and Somerset restored, Richard marched with his retainers toward London and was met by troops under the king and Somerset at St. Albans. Here was fought the first pitch battle of the Wars of the Roses. Somerset was slain, and Henry, who would never strike blow against Christian man, taken prisoner. Richard's chief supporter was Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, he could count besides his relatives the Nevilles, the mowbrays and the birchers a great band of noblemen some historians have seen in these wars no element but that of baronial jealousy and a certain colour is given to the view by the nature of the strife the great mass of the people went on with their routine while the nobles fought pitched battles through their paid retainers largely soldiery whom the end of the french wars had turned loose upon the land it is significant that private feuds were fought out under the badges of the two roses in this particularism in aim gave a peculiar quality of bitterness to the struggle soon after st albans henry again went mad and york already in possession of the government was declared protector once more next year the king recovered and York remained two years out of office. There was even a show of reconciliation in 1458, but Margaret was still bitter against him. Strife broke out again in 1459, and in 1460 York and his chief adherents fled the realm, to return in 1460, taking Henry prisoner once more while Margaret fled. York now claimed the throne, and as a compromise was recognized as heir. Margaret tried to vindicate her son's rights, and York was slain in battle against her at Wakefield. His son Edward, Earl of March, stepped into his father's position and pretensions, and though Margaret retained possession of her husband, the most pathetic figure at this time, Edward was recognized as king in London. All the forces of order, the towns, and the richer parts of England, The south and east held for him in dread of the Lancastrian anarchy. Edward won the north in a series of battles, beginning with Towton. Margaret and her son fled to France, and Henry was taken and imprisoned in the tower. For six years Edward held the throne, but his marriage to Elizabeth Woodville and the favor he showed her kinsmen alienated Warwick and the Nevilles. Warwick had set his heart on a French marriage for the king he showed his resentment by fomenting rebellions, and enlisted the king's brother, the Duke of Clarence, who was bent on marriage with Warwick's daughter. Edward was actually taken prisoner by the opposition in 1469, but released on terms. In the next year, he hunted the rebels out of the country. They returned within six months, armed to effect a Lancastrian revolution the south rallied to the earl and edward fled but to return in march fourteen seventy one with help from burgundy in april he took possession of london and put henry back in the tower within a fortnight warwick the kingmaker was slain at barnet and prince edward at tewkesbury margaret broken-hearted left england forever within a few weeks the unhappy henry was murdered in the tower for twelve years, Edward ruled England unopposed. He was greedy but thrifty, and he managed to live on his revenue and avoid taxation. He extorted a vast sum of money from the French king at the Treaty of Pekinny, being bought off from a war he never meant to wage. He encouraged trade and ruled firmly through a small council of his wife's relatives. The country was desirous of rest. Otherwise, Edward's rule might have been resented for he was by no means a constitutional king for years he did not call parliament and he raised benevolences where he could he was by nature indolent and though handsome and popular by no means an heroic figure he murdered for more revenge his brother clarence whom one of his infrequent parliaments had attainted edward died at the age of forty-one having ruined his constitution by excess and slothful ease He had gradually delegated his duties to his brother, Richard of Gloucester, a hard-working man who had ever been zealous in his brother's cause. Nothing in his character or career pointed to undue ambition. He easily obtained the protectorship and the person of the twelve-year-old King Edward. He imprisoned the queen's relatives and seized and beheaded, without trial, Lord Hastings, the late king's greatest friend. He got possession, too, of Richard, the younger brother of the young king and both were imprisoned in the tower he had himself crowned king of england declaring his brother's children bastards they were murdered within a month richard posed as a constitutional king and he counted on the support of a nation which he knew now dreaded civil war before all things but his cries were too flagrant even for the england of that day He suppressed the rebellion of Buckingham, his chief supporter, who, shocked by the murder of the princess, raised a revolt and was executed, but all men were disgusted at the monstrous nature of Richard's crimes. As his wife Anne Neville lay dying, it was rumored that he was already scheming to marry his niece Elizabeth, sister of the princess whom he had murdered. She was destined to be the bride of the man who overthrew him. It was inevitable that Henry, Earl of Richmond, the only representative of the House of Lancaster, should make a bid for the throne of England. It was in his name that Buckingham rose in 1483. He was the son of Margaret Buford, and Edmund Tudor, Yorkist and Lancastrian exiles, rallied to his banner as he prepared for the invasion of England. He landed on the 1st of August at Milford Haven, and three weeks later slew Richard on Bosworth Field. The Stanleys, who had deserted Richard on the field, crowned Henry Tudor with the crown of the fallen king, and so fittingly ended the final drama in the history of medieval England. End of chapter 6 End of England in the Middle Ages by Elizabeth O'Neill